Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Let's first of all talk to my uh, good friend, and uh, he's one of the best reporters in this country without question, joining us from Dolphin, Manitoba, is uh, Rich Cloutier, co-host of the news on 680 CJOB on weekdays and senior reporter with Global News in Manitoba. Rich, thank you for uh, for taking the time. What can you share with us about today's developments? Today, and I'm looking at um, a billboard here, an electronic billboard with a candle, hashtag Dauphin Strong. And as it all starts to sink in, and the people that we spoke to yesterday had a sense of who was on that bus, wasn't sure who was alive, who had passed away. They're now getting that sense. And uh, there's talk of a community vigil here, a, a public gathering as early as Monday evening. Um, there's pockets of sadness here in the sense that it is a very regular, busy Saturday day in this, this community of uh, just over 8,500 in western Manitoba. Um, but the pockets are seniors groups that meet. Uh, at seniors' homes. Uh, they're getting ready for uh, Sunday worship uh, tomorrow. Uh, ministers, priests who have been spending time um, with folks that are trying to deal with this. Uh, I have had so many conversations, Roy, with people that said, I could have been on that bus. We love the outing. We love the outing that takes us to the Sand Hills Casino about uh, an hour and a half south of here. And um, one woman in particular who I spoke with at bingo yesterday, and there was a sense that maybe we cancel bingo. No, bingo went on. It was important that there was some normalcy here. That She said that, wow, um, I decided not to go, wasn't feeling well. And then the news broke on Thursday and people were uh, calling me. And that frantic call that I think... Sometimes, you know, as a parent, you make, you hear an ambulance, you hear a news report, and you wonder if your loved one is okay. She was at the receiving end of those frantic calls from, from relatives and friends. And that all started to sink in yesterday and today. So um, there's St. John's Ambulance has three uh, dogs out here, healing animals, part of the recovery process. Yet the big community facility here, the welcoming center, it's going to shut down at five because not too many people have used that service. There's, there's a sense here that there needs to be uh, privacy at this point, and there will be time for the more public vigil in the days ahead. You know, it's always difficult. <clears throat> excuse me, if you're, uh, if you might have been on a, a bus, in a car, on a train, on an aircraft where there's been a a serious accident and there's been loss of life, and and somehow you avoided through circumstance, being on that conveyance. And I remember meeting uh, a man who um, was supposed to be on that Swiss Air flight that uh, went down over Nova Scotia. And by happenstance, he missed the flight. And it was very, very difficult for him to accept that his friends were on the plane, but he had uh, he'd, he'd, he'd somehow missed being caught in the tragedy. And that had an effect on me. I, well, look, let me ask you the, the question that, that I like to ask anyone who's a frontline reporter and 
And you're, you're one of the very best. We've talked, you and I have experienced and reported on many difficult, even tragic circumstances and incidents in our career. How is this affecting you, Dolphin? How's, how is it affecting you? Um, it'll affect me probably in a week or so. Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing that, and, and it's similar, and, and I will not compare what we do to first responders because what they see and what they do is raw. We're once or twice removed from it. Um, but you're so focused on the story. You're so focused on doing what needs to be done to inform people in, in an accurate way. Uh, it, it sets in after the fact. But, you know, as national media has descended on Dauphin, and I know many of the colleagues from the other broadcasters here, um, there tends to be uh, we all go out for a, uh, for a pop um, after deadlines. And we talk about that, and that is in itself healing um, and cathartic in so many ways. So, um, you know, I compare a little bit of this to Humboldt and yeah. uh, the coverage that I was a part of there. And, and Roy, I'll tell you it's different in the sense that there you had um, angry parents, angry and rightly so for a whole host of issues, the criminality involved in that, but that young lives were taken. Here, this is about lives that were taken, but lives well-lived in that sense. It's a horrible tragedy, and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to, to discount that. But what I'm saying, it is different in that sense, in that uh, there are people that want to talk about their loved ones, about the life and the contributions that they have made over 60, 70, and 80 years, as opposed to what happened um back in, in 2018 in the spring to the west of here where lives were robbed. So it's different in that way. And, and you do have that, that sense of, of it being different. Yet um, one of the most uh, toughest moments for me was uh, spending time at the senior center and, you know, watching bingo and the smiles and the conversations. But this was also the place where the seniors had dropped their cars off. So not just from Dauphin, but Dauphin surrounding areas. They dropped their cars off, got aboard that bus for the Sand Hills Casino south of here. And yesterday, every hour or so, there would be um, a vehicle arriving with two people in it. One would get out and one would go to one of the vehicles. And you quickly realized that that was a vehicle that had been parked there from someone who was aboard that bus and they're retrieving the vehicle. And I locked eyes with one of the young women um, that, that came to, that came to pick up the vehicle. And, you know, at times, you know, when to approach and when to stay away. And I could just see her welling up and she quickly got into the vehicle as if to say, thank you for not coming by and approaching me because it was tough enough to be in that parking lot to pick up that vehicle. Yeah, no, so don't. those are the moments that you go and you are reminded about the sensitivity and the empathy in our business that you have to employ in dealing with these Mm -hmm. situations. Let me ask you about the RCMP investigation. It appears to be moving quickly, but simultaneously, cautiously, and with care. Police are saying the truck driver did not violate road regulations or or signage, but there's still a lot going on, still a lot to be investigated. What do we know? The dash cam video from that semi-trailer, the tractor trailer, showed that the driver of the bus with those on board crossed right into the path of that eastbound 
truck. Now, 100 kilometers an hour along the Trans-Canada Highway, that minibus carrying the 25 had passed the westbound lanes, was in the median, and by whatever reason, whether it was a blind spot or thinking that they had time to cross, that's when the collision occurred. Of course, the, the, the impact and then the fire afterwards. Interestingly enough, the people that I've talked to, to a person, do not blame the driver of the minivan. And they are going out of their way to say what a wonderful man he is, a caring man, how he would wait for anybody that was late. He remains in hospital this hour, Roy. And, um, you know, they're all praying for his recovery. But, you know, as the RCMP have talked to the the semi-truck driver to get his statement, that um, lives have been forever changed, especially those two drivers. What a tragedy. What an absolute tragedy. Rich, thank you for everything you do, uh, keeping us aware across the country and keeping certainly your, your core audience in Manitoba aware of the situation as it develops. A real tragedy. Thank you, my friend. Appreciate the time. Take care. Dawson Strong, Ryan. Yes, sir. Dawson Strong. There's been so much conversation, so much talk, so much frustration over the Bernardo transfer from the maximum security prison Mill Haven in Ontario to a medium security prison in uh, Quebec. And even the, uh, the Premier of Ontario mused the other day about putting Bernardo into the general population of a, uh, of a prison, and uh, we all know what would happen in, in that regard. So we're going to talk more about that tomorrow. Uh, Tim Danson is going to be joining us. We'll also talk to another prominent lawyer who represented a serial killer in this country. Um, so we have a lot to talk about. Ron Dalton, I, I want to approach this a little differently now. Ron Dalton was convicted of murdering his wife, after 12 years in prison, forensic evidence proved him innocent. Ron is uh, co-president of Innocence Canada, and uh, they work very hard to identify the wrongfully convicted in this country and uh, find a way to persuade through evidence, scientific and otherwise, of the innocence of individuals who are in prison. Uh, Mr. Dalton joins us. InnocenceCanada.ca, by the way, is the is the website, InnocenceCanada.ca. And they're a small organization. They do great work. So if you can contribute something to the to the efforts of Innocence Canada, they would be more than more than happy if, if you did that. Ron, thank you very much uh, for the time. Let me ask you this out of the gate. What's your assessment of Correctional Service Canada quietly and secretly moving Paul Bernardo from that maximum security institution in Ontario to medium security in Quebec, uh, where um, where he's with he's housed essentially? I, I understand by with other um, with sex criminals. What's your sense of that, Roy? I'm the last one to uh, be in defense of the Correctional Service of Canada. And it's not the area of expertise that Innocence Canada deals with. We deal with innocent people. But by and large, my experience is the more the politicians stay out of it and they allow the Correctional Service of Canada's professionals and the parole board's professionals to deal with uh, Bernardo and any other prisoner, the better. Bernardo is serving several life sentences. He's a dangerous offender. There's a very, very minute chance that he will ever see freedom and it's up for them to decide where the best level 
of security to keep him is. If, if they have a special prison in Quebec for sex offenders and they can give him uh, a little bit more freedom than he's had uh, in maximum security custody, there's still, you know, 30-foot walls around these places and double double fences with razor wire at the top of them. So I, I would leave it to the professionals to, to deal with. I, I understand the public being outraged, but he's not going to a club fed or any of that sort of thing. So I, I wouldn't really opine one way or the other on it, but I think making it political is probably a mistake. Have you found uh, what's been said and what's being said uh, frustrating, given your experience with uh, the justice system, uh, which didn't treat you well, but you understand the correctional system and the justice system better than well, most. Well, I, I spent a, enough time in there to understand how it works. Yeah. It's very frustrating. It's not the real world, and, and it's uh, fraught with all kinds of problems. If I wasn't advocating for wrongly convicted individuals, which I kind of feel is a bit of a calling for me at this point, uh, I might be trying to advocate for prison reform, but I think my priority is still with the wrongly convicted. Yeah, I'm going to ask you about that in just a moment, but I do want to ask you this question. What's the talk now, do you think, inside Canada's correctional facilities? And is Bernardo in greater danger in that Quebec prison because of all the coverage that he's received than he might otherwise be? I I don't think uh, that the coverage makes much difference because there's not a prisoner or hardly a citizen in the country who doesn't know who Paul Bernardo is and what his background is. The danger comes if they put him in a less restrictive environment, because even in protective custody and in sex offender prisons, uh, people kill each other. And if that's, that's a decision for Bernardo and the correctional service to make. If they're prepared to live with the additional risk, and that's up to them, he would have to accept a certain level of additional risk just to go into the population even within a protective custody environment. Ron, uh, speak with us, please, about your friend, uh, Glenn Lassoon, who died, uh, I believe it was three days ago, who, like you, was uh, wrongfully convicted and spent years in prison. Glenn Glenn actually spent double the time that I did in in prison. Glenn had a, a difficult life. He was abandoned as a child. He probably had some mental health issues before he went to prison. He certainly had physical and mental health issues when he got out of prison. He received some compensation three or four years ago, but that didn't buy him back the the last time or his health. Now, the report I'm hearing is that he he was at a restaurant and choked on a piece of meat, and they weren't able to revive him. But I suspect that was probably complicated by uh, some heart issues that he had and and, and he may have been drinking at the time. He had fallen into some bad habits in, in the last couple of years, trying to deal with the, the frustration of what he had been through. Yeah, the idea of... Uh, so it's a tragic, a tragic end to a sad, a sad life. Yes. And the idea of hearing about uh, potentially choking on a piece of food and dying must be eerily... Uh, must bring some eerie memories for you. Well, it certainly, it certainly does. I... Uh, uh, after uh, my appeal was successful, uh, I had to do a retrial, and the judge doing the retrial lost his sister to a choking event a couple months into my trial. Now, the judge had to step down for health reasons just before that happened, but coincidentally, about the time he would have been uh, instructing my jury, his own sister choked on some bacon in her Ottawa home in front of her husband and passed away. These things do happen. Fortunately, they're relatively rare, 
but certainly it, it brings back bad memories for me. Yeah, people who may not be aware of your of your experience, uh, your wife uh, died choking on a piece of breakfast cereal, and an inexperienced doctor decided that uh, what was going on inside her throat was strangulation, and uh, that resulted in you being convicted of murdering your wife and spending 12 years in prison. Um, Ron, what about um, what about the innocent in Canada's prison system? Is it throughout the system? Is it men and women, uh, all ages? Do we have a do we have a really significant issue about with with wrongfully convicted innocent people being incarcerated in Canada? Roy, there's a, a very good book just came out in April by Professor Professor Kent Roach from the University of Toronto. He teaches at the law school there. He talks about a number of cases, mine included. It's called Wrongful Convictions. It's got an orange uh, uh, cover, dust cover on it. It's well worth people picking up and, and having a look at because he gives a pretty concise history of what the wrongful conviction movement in this country. The best estimate we have, because nobody really knows for sure, is that there are between 400 and 500 wrongful convictions per year in Canada. Now, a lot of them are for break and enter or lesser crimes, but they're still miscarriages of justice. We're currently working on slightly over 100 cases in the Innocence Canada office at the moment. Half of those are on a wait list because we're a nonprofit organization and we have to raise funds to exist. We, we spend our time fixing government's mistakes and paying for the privilege. So currently, the, the current justice minister, fortunately, has introduced legislation back in February to create an independent publicly funded body to do that type of work. Uh, it passed second reading this week, but we don't know the details. The devil's always in the details. We don't know who will be appointed if it gets through Parliament and the Senate before another election. And if it comes into force, we don't know exactly how it will operate. I suspect there'll always be a need for an organization like ours around. But we're closer now than we've ever been in this country to having a publicly funded independent body. Which is what we need. And, and you know, I, I don't want listeners to think that for a moment we're talking about Paul Bernardo when we talk about uh, people, the innocent being convicted, there's no doubt about Bernardo's guilt. But four to five hundred a year, Ron, in this country that's, are innocent. That's the best. That's the best. Wow, estimate. that's a big number. That's a really big and number. I, I repeat now, that's not homicide cases, of course. Yeah. That's all kinds of cases. Yeah. But you you have to remember that uh, 75 or 80 percent of criminal cases are resolved by way of uh, of agreement or plea bargain or something. And sometimes people will plead guilty to something just to save the risk of going to trial. There's all kinds of factors that, that come into play. But we know for certain that uh, we're getting more applications for homicide wrongful convictions than we ever did before. So it's not going down. Our population is getting larger. So the more people we have, and then we have some specific subcategories. Indigenous people in this country are very overrepresented in the prison system, and they're overrepresented in the wrongful conviction ranks as well. Uh, finally, just remind us of how long it took for you to be released from the time that you began your appeal, which I believe was fairly almost immediately after you were convicted. A couple weeks after I was convicted. Yeah. So, how, so it took 12 years. It took eight and a half years. And then uh, when my appeal was successful, 
I faced a retrial that took another couple of years. I was 12 years from start to finish. Then, because there's no mechanism for compensating people in our system either, then I spent seven years in civil proceedings uh, fighting for some compensation for myself and my family. I had a six-year-old daughter the year her mother died. She just graduated kindergarten. I made her high school graduation by about two hours, 12 years later. Yeah, I thought you mentioned that before, and I, it just yeah. uh, it always resonates with me. Yeah. Well, it, it it's kind of allows people to picture, yeah, you know, the length of time, and, and everybody can recall what they did between the time they graduated kindergarten and they graduated high school. For sure. I missed all that, and so did my family. Have you ever had your car stolen or a truck stolen? Closest I came was my friend Cynthia said a couple of summers ago, hey, there's a great place to have ice cream. Let's go over there. So she had her car, I had mine. And she suggested a parking lot. So in we went to the parking lot. We got the ice cream. It was great. We went for a little walk. Then we came back to the parking lot. My car was gone. And it's, it's a weird feeling. It really is a weird feeling. Somebody stole it. So I called the police. And they said, no, um, you parked in a uh, restricted area or no parking area, so the tow truck came and got it. So I got the I got the the car back. I won't fill in the details about how excited I was about that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I can be a little moody at times, uh, particularly if you steal my car. But uh, it's a crisis. Auto theft is now a crisis in Canada. And Eric Stober, online journalist, Breaking News, Global News, wrote a piece on this. I found it fascinating. And uh, Eric joins us on The Roy Green Show. How are you, Eric? Hi, Ryan. Good. How are you? Ah, good. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So let's talk about this. So vehicle thefts you found, up, found out have gone up about 300% in 2015. Tell us about that. Yeah, so this is a new report from the Canadian Financing and Leasing Association. So they found that thefts have gone up 300% since 2015 in Toronto. Uh, but this isn't just a Toronto problem. This is a national problem. They found that thefts have gone up all across the country, 50% in Quebec year over year from 2022 to 2021, 48.3% in Ontario, 34.5% in Atlantic Canada, and 18.3% in Alberta. So. This is something we're seeing across the country, and as the report said, you said, this is becoming a crisis. Yeah, so let's talk about that as well, because I think a lot of people would think of a car being stolen or a truck being stolen. Hey, it's just one of those things. You go to your insurance company, it's covered off, and you get a new vehicle, or you get your vehicle back, and they fix it, and if it's been damaged, and on goes life. But uh, the uh, the president and CEO of the Canadian Financing and Leasing Association told you, this is uh, this is having a devastating impact on Canadians. Share that with us, please. Yeah, I mean, not only is it the kind of situation where you just wake up in the morning and you look at your driveway and your car isn't there, but violent carjackings are also going up. Hmm. Uh, in Toronto, we had 229 in 2022 reported by the police. That's up from 102 in 2021. So we've been hearing it all around. Uh, I know we've all heard the story of Mitch Marner getting carjacked in early 2022. So this is something that's affecting everyone. And 
believe it or not, uh, the justice minister, federal justice minister, David Lametti, has had two government vehicles stolen in 2021 and 2023. So this is something that's become so prevalent that it's really hitting almost everyone. And as you mentioned, you talk to anyone and someone might have a story that their car has been stolen, just like you. Oh, I'll bet you there are. Well, I was stolen by a tow truck company, but <laughs> a towing firm stole my car because I parked in the wrong place. But there's a real monetary issue here as well. A billion dollars a year in losses. That's a, a lot of cash. Yeah, uh, it is a lot of cash. And the, believe, me, believe me, the insurance companies are very interested in getting to the bottom of this. So one major player is Equity Association, which is a nonprofit um, that is working with insurance companies to figure out how to tackle this. And But the problem is very pervasive. And I've been told that it's actually linked to international crime rings. So the thieves that are dealing in Canada just pop up because they're being hired from very organized crime organizations. So it's very hard to get to the bottom of this, despite lots of uh, busts happening in cities, including Toronto. So, so what I'd heard um, a few years ago, Eric, was that cars are being stolen and then they're being shipped to another part of the world where they, they just effectively disappear. And it's very hard to go and retrieve a vehicle thousands of miles away across one or two oceans. And it, how much of that is going on? You're exactly right. They are being shipped off. And this is one of the reasons why it's so hard to really tackle this problem. So they, these cars are being shipped uh, to places like Europe and West Africa, where they're going for much higher prices. So I was told by a person from Equité that a car uh, that might sell for 100000 in Canada could go up to 250000 in West Africa. So they're being shipped to these places, and it's very hard to find them There's unless there's very good coordination, which hasn't really been happening. And uh, get this, you, I found after a few minutes searching on a second-hand uh, selling website, a car with an Ontario license plate in Nigeria. So it's very easy to find these, and it's actually become a bragging right to have these Ontario license plates in some of these places. Okay, so they show up in, in this case was Nigeria, and they leave the Ontario license plate on it. Exactly, it's a bragging right. Yeah, wow. So uh, what, are they, what are they suggesting we do? Uh, and I, I've always... I'm just going to lead into what you wrote about in the, in the global news piece. I have a habit of walking into the house and I've got a little cylindrical um, thing with the lid on it, uh, screwed to the wall by the front door. And I just drop my car keys into that cylindrical thing because I, then I know where the keys are going to be. They don't want you to do that, do they? Not near the door. No. Um, that's one reason why the thefts have gone up a lot is because of these new technologies fobs and keyless ignitions. So what the thieves can do is use uh, this radar kind of device um, at your driveway, and it can have access to your fob that will be right in a dish just like that uh, by your front door. So the report is recommending that you can get a special container that uh, prevents the signal being transmitted to your driveway. Uh, and there are also a number of other recommendations. Uh, they recommend the club going back to the, the old club. Uh, oh, yeah. Very popular. yeah, yeah, I remember those. Uh, 
um, that can be a, a big deterrent because they see that, and that can just add those few extra minutes to um, stealing the car, which uh, they might not want to give up. Um, also, placing like an Apple AirTag, one of these tracking devices somewhere mm-hmm. in your car, can also help with finding it. I'm not publicly going to talk about my health any longer. We did that, and I appreciate your support so tremendously. But what really, really stands out to me is friendship. And it was underscored over the last two and a half months. What friendship means, what friendship matters, when it matters, when friends stand by you. And I've been very, very, very lucky to have friends stand by me. I'm going to talk about one friend in this segment. I'm going to talk to a friend in this segment. We'll do that right now. My friend uh, Ron Foxcroft, chairman of Fox 40 Industries, the inventor of the Fox 40 whistle, the best-selling whistle in the world, NCAA, NFL, NBA, um, CFL, soccer referees around the world, World Cup soccer referees use the Fox 40 whistle. Ron has been inducted into the Order of Canada. He has so many honors, a number of sports hall of so fame, but uh, we've known each other, Fox, we've known each other for 35 years. And uh, somebody said to me, I think it was one of your brothers said to me about a party at your house one day. I love what you've always said. Thanks for coming. Hope you're not staying long. <laughs> but one of your brothers said to me, you two are closer than we are as brothers. I, I, just, I just want to start this by saying thank you. You were there for me every single day. And I can't thank you enough. As I went through the whole experience of being rushed to the hospital, being in the ICU, being then in the in the another ward, another area of the hospital for another two weeks. Thank you so much. And after that, too. Roy, you are very, very special. Friendship is valuable. Friendship is very important. And your listeners should really know how we met and how we have become uh, dear and special best friends. And also, too, Roy... Through your illness, I know you don't want to talk about your illness and challenges, which are very serious, but I do want to mention two things. You have thousands of friends. You have thousands of listeners that have become friends that have depended on you. And Roy, as your dearest friend, I know how many friends, how many listeners that you have helped when you call somebody, if you call a premier, a president, a prime minister, or whatever, anybody important, it's Roy Green, they return your phone call. And not everybody in this country can get a return phone call from important people. And because you can, Roy, you have helped scores and hundreds and thousands of people that were in a dilemma and and needed your help. But we go back, as you said, 35 years. Thank you. Um, I was uh, named a guest speaker at a VIP (laughs) Junior Achievement event, something like I was at today. I was at the opening of the Hamilton Sports Hall of Fame, and I mentioned that Roy Green is back on the air. That got everybody's attention, particularly when I said, I'm going to be talking to Roy Green. It was a grand event, something like the event 35 years ago, I was named the guest speaker, and they said, you will be sitting at the head table with famous journalist and and uh, uh, radio host Roy Green, which 
Number one, made me nervous. Number two, I was nervous being the guest speaker. Number three, I'm always nervous being the guest speaker. So you sat down beside me and I said, uh, Mr. Green, um, there's something wrong with this equation. You are the host of a national radio show. You are famous. You have won three or four gold awards for public affairs broadcasting. And I'm the guest speaker. Let's switch. Let's pivot. Why don't you become the guest speaker and I'll just sit and enjoy it? To which you said to me, I am here to enjoy you speaking. Roy, that ticked me off. I thought you would uh, volunteer to become the guest speaker because you were famous, a journalist, a public speaker, and I was just nobody that was nervous about speaking. So I wanted, it wasn't the time and place to chew you out, but I wanted to chew you out. So I said, Mr. Green, do you play golf? Because I wanted to spend four hours with you chewing you out for not agreeing to be the guest speaker at the Junior Achievement event. We went golfing. We had such an amazing time. You became my dearest, special, best friend. And I want to say kudos. There has to be an award, a statue, something for Jeff Story, the program director, general manager, uh, your boss at Chorus Radio. I can't even imagine being Roy Green's boss. That Neither can Jeff. Difficult because, Roy, I've never <laughs> won a robust argument with you. You yeah. always win. You're a great golfer. You're a great <laughs> debater. And I can't imagine. Anyway, Jeff's story had the good judgment. He actually called Rick Samprin, another friend of yours at yeah. CHML, yeah, right. to say, I, ha- I can't reach Roy. I need to call emergency. And, uh, of course, you know what happened. They came to your house. You got admitted into Oakville Trafalgar Emergency Hospital. And Jeff called me in Houston. And, um, you know, Roy, I always remember where I was when big events happen in the world, like when Paul Henderson scores his goal, uh, when Nick Taylor uh, hits a putt. I still remember it was 9.35 a.m. Houston time. I got a call from our dear friend Jeff Story and said, Roy has medical challenges and has been rushed to the hospital. Roy, I want you to know you are well known because I had to arrange. I'm your trustee and best friend uh, and golfing partner, and I had to arrange a flight home. I called the airline and said, Roy Green is not well. I need a ticket to Toronto, and they said, the the airline is full. I said, this is for National Gold Award broadcaster Roy Green. I need to get home. They said, okay, I got home. And uh, had been with you since you went in. And yeah. Roy, yeah, we Fox. do need to talk about the amazing health care service provided to Roy Green. I don't know if it was, I I don't want to think it was because you're famous, Roy, but I got to tell you right now, the nurses, the practitioners, the doctors, uh, the therapists, the emergency hospital people, the police, the paramedics at Oakville Trafalgar, Halton Healthcare, 
They're amazing people. Absolutely. With Jeff's story of Chorus CHML, these healthcare workers, Roy, on your behalf, deserve some award, maybe a statue. You know what, Fox? They do it for everybody. The nurses, you know, I I respect everybody, the the, the paramedics, the first responders, the doctors, the nurses, they're... To me now, they're a completely different category because they're there 24 hours a day and they take care of you in the most difficult of circumstances, in the most intimate of circumstances. And they do it professionally and they do it with care. So it will always be so significantly important to me. I think you stretched the truth about a few things about getting the plane. I think it was Ron Foxcroft get it, wanting a plane. That's why they, I'm surprised they didn't charter one for you. <laughs> we, you and I could tell stories for, for days. The things that have happened to us that were spontaneous, um, that just this happened. And some of them you precipitated because sometimes you do things and then you think about them later. And I'm always there with the bucket to bail us out. Right? True? That's not exactly true, Roy, in that golf story. <laughs> I, I just that. want to clarify. Oh, yeah. The uh, lady border guard uh, oh, no. said to me, don't where's say. your passport? No, and I it. said, it's in the trunk in my no, golf bag. She said, that's a stupid place to put it. <laughs> to which I no, said, no, don't you say. know who's in my passenger seat. No, you this didn't. The famous no, you didn't. national broadcaster, Roy Green, <laughs> no, winner didn't. of four national no, awards, to which she no, said, you, you guys get in there and walk the green mile. <laughs> you did not. You said so. Something else. <laughs> yeah, I did. And that's but, what got us into the building, and we got the attention of what was his name, McDonough or something. Like it, that. Yeah, and then uh, you know, I also. That's learned, when you said, "Do you know who you're dealing with? You're dealing with with uh, with Roy Green." And your son Steve said, "Dad, you've helped us enough. Sit down." Yeah, that's right. And I guess I shouldn't have said you've oh got Pepsi God. in your vending machine, and I prefer Coke. <laughs> you did. Yeah. Oh my goodness, but Roy, yeah. you know. I know, and and this is your show, but I'm talking. I know you don't want to talk about your health, but I just want to once again say I took you to your successful surgery in Georgetown Hospital. You did. Thank you for that. Five o'clock in the morning. We walked in there, the nurses, the practitioners, the doctors, the emergency, the paramedics, treated us like gold. They didn't realize, they didn't know, they couldn't know that you were the famous Roy Green from the Roy Green Show. They just were so professional. And, you know, it's quite easy to uh, criticize our health care system. And I know our health care system in the last 20 years has been needing some financing and some innovation and some uh, uh, revamping and so on. However, the people there in Halton Healthcare, Georgetown, uh, they took care of you. Now, I, I will confess that once I was you, you got satisfied. You got in there at six thirty a.m. and one lady did say to me, "Is that the famous Roy oh, Green?" He goes again. I would love you to arrange to get his autograph once he's done. Here he goes so, again. <laughs> I, I know you don't want to talk about your health, Roy, but no. that was uh, that made me proud, and I'm so happy that you are back on the air. Thank you, Ron. You are important. You are doing a service to this country. You are tackling some of the issues that uh, the rest of the country are reluctant to talk about and deal with and get involved. And your listeners... 
there's thousands. Roy, my inbox, when you were ill and going through your medical challenges, my inbox is full. I am, it was messages, I am concerned about Roy Green. I know you're his dearest friend. Please tell me how he's doing. And Roy, that's just a testament to who you are, who you help, and how important uh, your show is to this entire country because it is a national show. My friend, it's important. I just wanted us to talk about friendship, but you've just, uh, I, I have to thank you for everything that you've done for me. And not just in the last two and a half months, you did a lot for me over the years. And our friendship is really important and significantly important. It's huge in our lives. But what matters is I want people to know if you have friends, value them, keep them close and be there for them. I'm going to tell one really quick story, then i got to say something else. Uh, I I was never a good golfer, uh, but I hit the ball a damn long way. Yep. And But never knew where it was going. So Ron and I were playing at Hamilton Golf and Country Club one day, and I had this 8-degree, 560-C, totally illegal driver. And I smashed it into a creek 83 yards from the, from the tee box. And we got up to the, to the to the to the to the ball, and I said, "Fox, you never told me there was a creek here." He looked at me, and said, "You hit a driver." I didn't think it was an issue. <laughs> <laughs> Ron, thank you so much. I, I have to say something about my other dear friend who was there for me so so much, Cynthia. But thank you, Ron, for everything. And really, friendship is what it's about. Friendship is what it's about. It is, Roy. And can I just finish with this? Friendship is so valuable. I want to just ask your listeners, pick up the phone, call a friend, even when you have nothing on your mind except to say, you are my friend, you are important. That will make a difference in somebody's life. You're the best. You are the best. Thank you, Ron. Thank you, Roy. Take good care. Pleasure. Ron Foxcroft, he really is one one in a billion. He does so much for so many people and never asks for a thank you or an acknowledgement. So I wanted to say something about Cynthia. I mentioned the parking incident. Going for ice cream, my car got towed away because she chose the parking lot. (laughs) But uh, Cynthia has been a rock in my life. And uh, as I struggled, and I did struggle hard in the two and a half months, she was there for me every single day. Didn't want to come on the air. Didn't want to talk. But Synth, I uh, I can't thank you enough. You took great care of me every day. I don't know where I'd be without you. I don't know what I would do without you and without you caring. So uh, I am I'm very much in your debt. And you never ask for anything. You always give. You're a truly remarkable, one-of-a-kind human being. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.